Luke 16. As Jesus continues to lean into this idea of death and resurrection, as Jesus continues to push against hyper-religiosity, and as Jesus continues, once again, to push against trusting in wealth. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May have a seat. Recently on a Friday night at the Harriman household, I think I've mentioned before that it is custom to have family movie night. And so it's been fun as our kids have gotten older to be able to start to watch movies that Emily and I too enjoy watching. And uh, one such Friday night happened within the last month as we pulled out the classic 80s film Back to the Future. Uh, Really great on so many different levels. Uh, Of course, the story uh, with Michael J. Fox, um, Marty McFly goes back to uh, the future with the professor, the scientist, to see what life was like in the 50s. Uh, in this time machine that is this beautiful DeLorean, right, that was craft, you know, crafted uh, with great ingenuity and creativity. And he goes back and he experiences what life was like for his parents, what life was like for him before he existed. And then he saw some things that were troubling, and he sought at that point to change history, at that point to alter the future. And then he had to get back into the present time. And then, of course, you know, there's different things about the film that compel us to do it. But this morning, Jesus does a similar thing. Jesus is giving his hearers at the time, and he's giving us a glimpse into the future. And he's given us a glimpse into the future 
as a way of warning. He's given us a glimpse into the future so we can prepare now for the reality that waits ahead. And the reality that waits ahead in Luke 16 in an overarching way is simply this, that there is life after death. Luke 16 is a passage that communicates in an overarching or a meta-narrative type way, simply stated that this life is not all there is, that there is indeed life after death. Now, while that might roll off the tongue fairly easily and it might come to your ears fairly easily, the truth is that rarely do we live with this reality in our minds. Rarely do we live with this burden on our hearts, that what we experience here and now is not all there is. It's so easy for us day to day, moment by moment, to simply live by sight, yet Scripture repeatedly encourages us and calls us to live by faith. And so this morning, we are brought on a journey of faith for us to see that there truly is life after death. We're going to hit on three key points, three realities that exist in this story. But before I unpack and tell you what the three realities are, I got to confess that this parable uh, is packed with weight and with meaning. And in many ways, this parable would, uh, you could produce a sermon series, three to four sermons, just out of this parable alone. One, One sermon simply could be on the reality of the afterlife. Another sermon simply could be on uh, the reality of hell. Uh, Another sermon could be uh, on the power of the Word of God. Uh, And all of those would warrant in and of themselves potentially sermons uh, that stand alone. But next week is Advent, and it's time for a new series. And we said we'd spend nine weeks in the parables. Thus saith the Lord. So today we're going to end. Uh, our parable series, and we're going to unpack this overarching truth that there is life after death, and I want us to see three realities about the life after death. The first reality that I want us to see uh, under the overarching reality that there is life after death is that the life that we will live forever is not simply a continuation of this life. The life that we will live forever is not simply a continuation of this life. Just because things are a certain way now does not mean that they will be like that forever. And in fact, we are guaranteed to some degree that the way things are now will not be the way they are forever. We see that reality. We also see a reality in that there's life after death, that there's a great chasm in eternity. We see this specific word in this story. You probably heard it as we see Jesus telling this difference between the rich man and Lazarus, uh, he speaks of a great chasm. So when there is life after death, there is, that life is going to be different than this life. Things will be turned upside down. In the life after death, there will be a chasm that exists eternally. And then also in the life after death, uh, under this overarching idea, we really do see the gift we have through the power and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. So let's unpack this first reality this morning, that things are not eternally the way things are now. Which, as I reflected on this, that's good news for some people and probably harder news for others. For example, 
If you slept on the street last night in Knoxville with near freezing temperatures, which I doubt any of you did, you're really thankful that the world that is to come is not like the world that exists now. But you don't only have to have experienced something that palpable. Uh, Any suffering we experience in this life causes us to long with John in Revelation and to cry for Christ to come and for Him to come quickly. Because the reality of suffering, for example, death, is something that makes us long for the new heavens and the new earth to be different than our life and our experience now. But then when we think about our creature comforts, and we think about our homes, not sleeping on the street, and we think about our material possessions, which Jesus clearly is addressing in this passage. We didn't read the verses that come before this, but Jesus continues to lean into the danger of wealth and riches. We looked at that just a couple weeks ago with the rich fool, and we referenced the rich young ruler who lives in this very perilous place, so much so that Jesus says it's easier hyperbolically, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, or eye of a needle, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But when we bathe ourselves and we find our identity and our wealth and our possessions, there's some sort of burden and there's some sort of ache and uneasiness that we have to think about the world that is to come will not be like this world because our world has been cultivated and curated in a way, honestly, that has created comfort and power and control and approval, right? It's like we're riding, we're calling shotgun, right? Did you ever do that in high school when you were going to get in the car with other people, right? And if you weren't the driver, which would be kind of the primo seat, I guess, then you would call shotgun, which meant you had the front seat. And not dissimilar to that, we used to do this in my family, if we were all sitting in the room together and let's say you had to get up to get something to drink or maybe go to the bathroom, but you really liked the seat you had, you would call dibs on that seat, right? Like, just because I'm getting up from my seat, dibs on the recliner when I get back. Nobody take it. And it's almost as if we think about our existence like that in this world. But what we've got to hear is there are no dibs and there is no shotgun in the new heavens and the new earth. And in fact, many ways we see in the new heavens and the new earth, things are flipped upside down. God's economy works backwards. He says this over and over. Jesus says this over and over. The first, guess where they will be? Last. And the last, guess where they will be? first. Now, I'll say again, I've said this before, the Bible never explicitly or inherently speaks negative about the existence, the mere existence of riches and wealth and possessions. And in fact, the uh, acquisition of wealth and possession and riches do not or are not synonymous with not being in heaven by any means. It's just simply stated that the acquisition of those things creates a greater hurdle and a greater aversion to you needing and being dependent on someone else. 
Because these things give us the illusion of self-sufficiency. But there are many wealthy and rich people, as in people that were wealthy and rich in this world, in heaven now, experiencing the riches of God. But human riches do deter us from building wealth and riches in God. And once again, because things are upside down, material poverty and neediness, even suffering, even if it's not material suffering, creates within us this ache and this dependence and this longing for things to be different. And this passage testifies to this reality. The rich man, the text tells us, had his way in the first life, and Lazarus has his way in eternity. Under this reality of life coming after death, we see that this life will be turned upside down from the life that we currently live. And I'll ask you or encourage you, challenge you with one point of application before we move to this idea of a chasm that exists in the life which is to come. And the question is simply this, where are you investing your riches right now? Where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your treasure? Where are you investing your talents? Are you building riches in this life only? There really is, it's a cliche, but, it, but it's a, it is still a poignant image that if nothing else, the kids will appreciate. Um, but we truly have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, right? As silly and cliche as that image is, it works. Where are you building riches? Only in this kingdom, your kingdom, or are you building riches in the kingdom that is to come? So that's a reality in the afterlife. Another reality in the afterlife is that there is a chasm. And at this point, I want to look at the text again and read verses 22 through 26. And in order to do that, I'm going to look here because our bulletin, I'll mark the verses for you so you can find them there in the middle. But 22 through 26, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. I mean, there's so much in this passage even to see the way that these two men entered the afterlife. One was carried by angels, one was simply buried. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died because death is the great equalizer, right? It happens to everybody. And he was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and saw Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you invested only in things of this earth. And therefore you had your good things. And Lazarus, in a like manner, not by his choice per se, invested in hard things, bad things, things of suffering, you know, like having open wounds and have dogs licking them at the gate of a rich man, by the way. That's what Lazarus had in this earth. But now, things are different. He's comforted, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm 
It's been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, as you might imagine, there's some points that need to be made here when we talk about this chasm. The first one is, this is not a great church growth strategy uh, on your ninth Sunday in worship to talk about the chasm that exists uh, throughout eternity and to specifically speak about the reality of hell. Uh, Number two, um, but by the way, our lack of thinking about it and the lack of speaking about it does not cause it to not exist, right? Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit about it. Um, Another thing that we will not be able to do at this point is to chase down every theory within every religion on everybody's idea of the afterlife and the different states of the afterlife and what, is one, what one is able to do in the afterlife and what, is one, what one is not able to do. We won't be able to chase all those things down. What I want us to do this morning as we look at this idea uh, of the afterlife, the second point, that the, in the afterlife there is a great chasm, I basically want us to just feel the weight of the chasm that the Scriptures speak of and to feel the reality of the chasm that the Scriptures speak of. Interestingly enough, there has been little, if any, debate throughout church history on the existence of the afterlife and specifically on the reality of hell. No orthodox church father has in any substantive way, with any traction, spoken against this chasm. Something I'd ask you to do, a lot of you have pens uh, as we enter into this hard subject. I might get you to do this again, but if you will, so uh, enter into an exercise or object lesson with me. If you have a pen and you have a bulletin, I mean this. Um, I would encourage you to draw a circle and, and find a spot in your bulletin where you can maybe draw a circle as big as possible. Draw the biggest circle you can. You can circle around words or whatever. Uh, maybe, in fact, today, this is why we don't have printing on the front and the back of the bulletin on the inside. You can draw a big circle, a big blank spot uh, on either the front or the back. And as you're drawing that circle, complete the circle, taking up the whole page. This moment, this might feel a little more like teaching than preaching. And I just want you to put the smallest dot you can in that circle. Just a pinpoint. Now, of course, this is not drawn to scale, but you're going to get the idea. That circle, what that circle that you just drew encompasses is all the knowledge that exists in the world. Everything that there is to be known is encompassed in that circle. And you know what the pinpoint dot is? It's more than how much you know. And so when we think about that, it's humbling. And so when we think about something hard, it's important for us to remember that our knowledge is limited in a hyper way. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, in his famous essay, why I am not a Christian, said this, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and, that it is, it, and it is that he believed in hell. 
It is a doctrine that put cruelty into the world and gave the world generations of cruel torture. And the Christ of the Gospels, if you could take Him as His chroniclers represent Him, would certainly have to be considered partially responsible for that. For Bertrand Russell, that was a major defeater. And I don't look down on him for that. I mean, who would not see the reality of this chasm and specifically the doctrine of hell? And specifically, it's described in Luke 16 as eternal torment and anguish and punishment as a reality. Who would not have an aversion to this? J.I. Packer, an evangelical scholar, Christian, who believes in this doctrine, says this, though, about the desire for this to not exist. No true Christian, I think, need hesitate that in his heart of hearts would like universalism to be true. And universalism, of course, is that everybody goes to the same place, and that place is not hell. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what you believe, no matter who you are, universalism says we all go to the same place. And J.I. Packer says, who wouldn't want that to be true? Who can take pleasure in the thought of people being eternally lost? If you want to, if you want to see people damned, there's something wrong with you. Universalism is thus a comfortable doctrine in a way that alternatives are not but wishful thinking based on a craving for comfort and a reluctance to believe that some of God's truth might be tragic is not not a sure index of reality. I mean, who wouldn't want this to be true? It's so interesting when we talk about this chasm or we talk about the afterlife and specifically we talk about hell, we start to joke. Woody Allen says, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right? Billy Joel tells us, they say there's a heaven for those who await. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. I don't know if he read Luke 16. Because the rich man doesn't seem to be having a lot of fun as we read this passage. What hell does... And once again, we cannot exhaust this, is it testifies to the reality of God's justice and His judgment. Hell testifies to the reality of God's justice and His judgment. This chasm testifies to the reality of God's judgment and His justice. Tim Keller, whom I will start relying on for about the next four minutes heavily, says this, Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. And then he speaks in the same way that C.S. Lewis did against this notion of God damning or sending people to hell like they're choosing a football team or something. Keller and C.S. Lewis, a pretty good combo, go on to say, rather, it's something in each one of us that, if undealt with, will become hell. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this in The Great Divorce, and there's great mystery in this, by the way. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, 
thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Kierkegaard said, sin is building your identity on anything that is not God. And Keller says, hell is continuing that building project for eternity. And C.S. Lewis says, there's only two people in the end. The people that say, thy will be done, or the people who hear from God, thy will be done. In Dante's Inferno, we read this entering this chasm. Through me you enter into the city of woes. Through me you enter into eternal pain. Through me you enter into the population of the lost. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Pretty good description of what the rich man is experiencing in Luke 16. I quoted Dan Allender in the beginning. I'd like to quote him again now and then make a point of application before we move to our last point. Dan Allender says, Christ never intended to cover up the dark side of life. Christ never intended to cover up the dark side of life. And we as Christians can't do that either. Me as a preacher to try to be faithful can't do that either. But rather to illuminate a path through it. Christ never promised no darkness. What Christ did promise is illumination through the darkness. There is a chasm that exists. This is a reality. Whether we completely understand it or not, whether we ascribe to it or not, it doesn't really matter whether we believe it or not. One of my friends in graduate school went to undergraduate at Samford University. And as a result of that, uh, they would bring in various preachers and Christian speakers at time, I guess, to speak in chapel or do different conferences. And one time, John Piper, a uh, pretty famous preacher, uh, Reformed Baptist uh, from Minnesota, widely known really throughout the world as an author and um, great scholar and, and passionate preacher, was there doing a series for four days uh, preaching on, I don't even know exactly what the series was on that he was preaching on, but my friend and his friends would go every day uh, to hear John Piper. And finally on the last day, and people would gather around him every day after he finished to ask questions. And one of my friend's friends uh, was waiting patiently afterwards to ask John Piper a question at the end. And he gets up to him. And um, John Piper, by the way, if you've ever heard him or read him or seen him, um, he doesn't joke a lot. Um, he's not very Woody Allen-esque uh, in the way he carries himself. He, he's, he means business, kind of like all the time, seemingly. And um, so my friend's friend, I guess not knowing that, goes up and thinks that he's going to crack a joke to John Piper. And he says, hey, um, I got a question. He's like, well, sure. And, you know, most people are asking, like, deep theological questions. He said, hey, you've been here for four days. And like, I just kind of can't help but to notice you've worn the same thing every day. Like the same outfit. Like, 
what's up with that? You know, and I think, I'm sure he was like looking over his shoulder, kind of like laughing. And John Piper said, son, there are people dying and going to hell and you're worried about what kind of suit I'm wearing. I think, what that's, I think that's what Luke 16 is intended to do for us on some level. And as much as we laugh at the sophomore in college asking a silly question, really in a disrespectful, irreverent way, that's us. People are dying and spending an eternity in a great chasm full of anguish and punishment and damnation. And we're worried about what kind of deals we can get on Black Friday. We need to feel the weight of this reality that exists in the afterlife. And not only the weight, but there needs to be a sense of urgency. Which probably means there's some chips that need to be cashed relationally in your life with people that you know that don't know Christ. The last component we see in this passage is really interesting. So just to keep you up to date, we're conceding the reality of the afterlife in Luke 16. We see that the afterlife's not going to be like this life, like we don't get the same seats. We also see in the afterlife that there's a great chasm that exists. And then lastly... The reason we know all this is true about the afterlife is the Bible tells us so. Do you see this interaction at the end? It's like the rich man concedes that his reality is his reality. I can't imagine what that pill would be like to swallow for him. But he says, okay, then fine. At least send Lazarus to go tell my family. And at this point, he's wanting to, and you even wonder if Charles Dickens, in all seriousness, reflected upon this story when he writes the novella, A Christmas Carol. Right? To go back and visit in order to change the reality in the future. Just let him go do that then. And Father Abraham, of course, who is synonymous with Jesus here, and God Himself answers, no. They have Moses and the prophets. And this should be really shocking to us. And by the way, Moses and the prophets was the Bible. Like this is a story in the New Testament, so the New Testament did not exist at this point. And so when they referred to the Bible, they referred to Moses and the prophets. And He says, no... They don't need to be, like, they have been warned, like, by Moses and the prophets. Like, they have Isaiah, and they have Jeremiah, and they have the Pentateuch, and they have the Torah. They, they have everything they need. He says, no, 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 but, like, this would be pretty sensational. This would be pretty amazing. Like, they're skeptical people. They're naturalists. But, man, if you do something supernatural, like have someone rise from the dead and go back and give them warning, they at least would be saved from what I am experiencing. They don't believe what the Bible says. They won't even believe someone who has risen from the dead. 
talking to them. This is an amazing commentary on the power and the sufficiency of Scripture. You know the Bible is the most well-attested document in the history of the world. Probably learned about Plato in high school and in college. Your teacher, nor you, probably ever question the legitimacy of the authorship or the content of Plato's writings. You know when Plato wrote and then someone wrote what Plato wrote, and then someone wrote what Plato wrote, and then someone wrote what he wrote, wrote, he wrote. You know how big the gap is between when Plato actually wrote something and the earliest copy they have to what Plato wrote? 1,200 years. What about Homer? Everybody studied the Iliad, right? Anyone ever question the legitimacy of the authorship or the content of the Iliad? If you're in a public university, I'm sure not. You know when Homer wrote the Iliad, he wrote it, and someone else wrote it, and someone else wrote it, and someone else wrote it, and then someone else wrote it. You know how big that span is? 500 years. What about the New Testament? You know when Paul wrote, and someone wrote, and someone wrote? You know they made copies? They continue to find more and more fragments that would back this archaeologically. But the best guess is on some documents and some aspects of Scripture, you know what the span is? Right around 30 years. From when Paul wrote, and Homer's 500, and Plato's 1,200, what we've got in our hands is the Word of God, and it carries with it great power and sufficiency that is even greater than a supernatural act of someone rising from the dead giving warning. Do you believe it? I'm not asking do you have a hard time with it. Just because you have a hard time with it doesn't mean it can't be true. I would refer you back to the circle and the dot. And we can have more conversation about that. One of my close with telling you about another friend of mine in graduate school. This is actually my best friend in graduate school. Was an undergrad at another university um, in the southeast. He grew up in the south but was not a believer. Becoming less and less synonymous these days, uh, I guess. And uh, he goes off to college and gets paired with a random roommate, and his random roommate is a Christian, and they engage in different banter and, you know, philosophical discussion and fun that freshmen have when they're in college. And uh, as time went on, they would, you know, entertain different discussions and, and all. And one night, my friend, his name's Jeremy, uh, from graduate school as a freshman in college in his dorm room, Mississippi State, Starkville, Mississippi, is uh, lying underneath... Uh, on the bottom bunk, his friend Carl is on the top bunk, and the lights are out, and they're having conversation. And they've had conversation before, and the lights go out this night, and Carl simply says, Jeremy, I don't condone this by means of evangelism, by the way. Jeremy, I feel sorry for you. And Jeremy said, what are you talking about? And he said, Because I don't know if I could sleep or close my eyes knowing if I didn't wake up, I would be in hell. 
And then they stopped talking. The next morning, Jeremy, who's a searcher and a thinker, knew where Carl went to church. And literally, this is a true story, the next day went and knocked on that senior pastor's office door, introduced himself, told him about the conversation with Carl, asked him if what Carl told him was true, and that pastor said yes. And Jeremy prayed to receive Christ in that pastor's office at that moment. Now, once again, I would never condone that as a means of evangelism. That story is somewhat sensational, though true. It doesn't always happen. But do we believe this? And if we believe it, are we missional about it? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this story. It's pretty complex, even as I sit here and talk about it. I hope it was a good idea to preach on it. Lord, we pray that you would rub these truths into our hearts and into our minds. They're challenging. The whole concept of the afterlife is, hard, is a hard pill to swallow, and then this chasm is even harder. And then the sufficiency and the power of the Scriptures, when there's so many questions that arise in our heart and our mind when we think about them, it's hard. We pray that you'd give us the gift of faith. We pray that you'd be gracious with us. We pray that you'd give us a sense of urgency to communicate this message. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.